grade, they can be dismissed to children's church. If you have children that are younger than kindergarten, there is child care downstairs if you want to avail yourself of that. Uh, and any kids in the kids' choir are free to go to children's choir. As our children are being dismissed, uh, I'd like to introduce somebody who really needs no introduction. Uh, our preacher this morning is uh, Mark Jennings. Many of you know Mark. Uh, when I was on sabbatical last summer, uh, Mark took over and took the preaching to a new level. I'm not going to say what level, but <laughs> to a new level, nonetheless. And, uh, <laughs> okay. uh-huh. and uh, it, it's great to have him back. He's here visiting. Uh, where have you been the last year, anyway, since you left us? You're taking into my time. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, about that. <laughs> You know, seriously, we had talked about doing a dialogue sermon where you preach the sermon together, and then we're like, you know... It wouldn't work. Yeah, no. it would just be... It would go places we don't want to go, so... To, to answer your question... Yeah, sorry, um, yeah. My family, we've been in uh, Illinois, mm-hmm. um, uh, near my family down there, preparing as I will start my doctoral studies in the fall. That's right. And you're doing your uh, doctoral studies in New Testament? That's correct. Awesome. So Mark will be starting in the fall. You can be praying for them and... So he's here, and I just thought uh, he needed to bless us again with his teaching. And uh, it's just a privilege to have you here, Mark. And uh, can I just pray for you as we start? Sure. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this uh, man. Thank you for Mark. Thank you for how much he loves the Bible. Thank you for how much he believes the Scriptures and has committed his life to wanting to teach it and preach it, both in the, acad- the academy and in the local church. Thank you, God, for the privilege we had here in this church of launching him in his preaching ministry. Thank you, God, for the fact that since he's been in Illinois, he's been preaching in churches different Sundays as he's had opportunities. So, God, we just thank you that we get to see the fruit of our labor. And we pray now that you'd fill him up with the Holy Spirit, that you'd uh, empower him to preach with unction and with authority, and that, his, that your word, God, would speak to our hearts. I pray, Lord, help us as your people to sit at your feet, Jesus, and hear your word to us. And, God, to listen not only with our ears, but with our hearts and to put what you say to our hearts into action. And so, Lord, we anticipate, uh, as always, whenever your word is opened, you to bless us and speak to us. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. morning. I know what some of you are thinking. Just when you thought it was safe to (laughs) come back to church on a Sunday in the summer... Here I am. And I know some of you are thinking that Dunkin' Donuts coffee that you fought against, that you came to church, you resisted that temptation, is now tasting like it had been really good. Of course, the best time for you to vacate would have been when the kids scrambled, and you've missed that opportunity, so here we are. I'm definitely delighted to be here with you. Um, this place is very dear uh, to me and my family's hearts. Uh, it's, it's hard to believe that just a year ago uh, we were working through Philippians together. It's hard to believe you guys are only about halfway through Luke in that entire year. But that's, that's Jeremy's pace. This is a good Sunday. Um, this is it's a really good Sunday. You ever have those Times where you you come into church and and the the preacher 
presents a text. I mean, you're a Bible reader, but the, the preacher presents a text you've never really read before. You've never really heard before. And your, your heart gets pumping and your spirit quickens because you're going to be looking at a part of the Bible that you've never really looked at. Well, of course, this is not one of those Sundays. We're going to be looking at the Good Samaritan. Just out of curiosity, how many have ever heard the story of the Good Samaritan? <laughs> right? How many heard that as a little kid for the first time? How many are thinking that you pretty much know how this sermon is going to go and the cup of coffee would have tasted really <laughs> good? Put your hands down, especially you. But it's true, isn't it? I mean, isn't Jesus tells such a good parable that it gets played over and over and over again throughout time that we sort of, well, we sort of stop listening to it. Like that relative, you know, who she's sweet, she's losing her mind a little bit, and all she does is tell you the story about the sweet kid that helped her with the groceries when it was rainy. Sweet story. After you've heard it 20 times, you almost throw up every time she starts in it again. You're just tired of it. Well, Christ told an amazing parable. And as we prepare our hearts, let us pray that we will hear it. He is the author of it. And His Spirit is in us. Let us pray that we will hear it as if it was the first time. Lord God, You are a holy and wonderful God. An amazing God. And You inspired Luke to record this beautiful parable that You told. This earthly story with such heavenly meaning. Lord, I ask that You will just give us ears to hear. A heart to understand. That we will listen as if we're hearing you tell it for the first time. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. If you're using a pew Bible, I think you'll find that on page 1028. Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly. Jesus replied, Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. 
So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Amazing story. Great parable. Everyone's heard it. But there's a specific occasion that sparks this parable. There's a specific sequence of events that leads up to it. It's not some sort of random thing. It's not just Jesus is walking along and says, Hey, did I ever tell you about the guy who got mugged on the way to Jericho? No, there is a conversation that leads up to it. And I think if we're going to truly understand why Jesus told this parable, we need to know why Jesus told this parable at this point, in this time, in this context. So I'd like to spend a few minutes looking at that. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now we know an expert in the law during that time isn't someone who's skilled in in judicial matters. An expert in the law in first century Judaism is one who is wholly devoted to the study of the law and the oral traditions. Wholly devoted to the idea of faithful obedience. And also sees such obedience not only as an indicator of who a true believer is, but also as a way to earn or establish one's credibility in the kingdom of God. So on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's kind of an odd combination of words, really. What must I do to inherit? When I die, my boys what little I have left when I die, will inherit. They didn't do anything to get that inheritance. They were born. I mean, my wife did everything. You know, really, if you think about it. You know, they didn't do anything. So it's sort of an odd combination of words. And without to get into it too much, you need to understand that the idea, the prevalent idea was that Israel would inherit the blessings of God. That Israel would inherit uh, the, the resurrection and all the gifts that went with it. That by the grace of God, he had chosen Israel. But the key question for those of the law was who belongs to Israel? And they answered that question by saying who obeyed the law the best? So you have this combination of what can I do to inherit? What works can I perform to be a part of the grace of Israel? That was this idea circling around first century 
Judaism, and that's what this lawyer asked. What can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, being a good teacher, as all good teachers do, he throws the question right back at him. I've realized once I become a professor, I will never have to answer a question ever again. You just toss it right back at him. He says, well, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And this expert on the law, this person who has spent months, years, dwelling on this, replies, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. He, he combines the Shema, which was a daily recital in the nation of Israel, he combines, from Deuteronomy, he combines that with its sort of co-text in Leviticus, the love your neighbor as yourself part. He, he puts those two together and it's a great answer. It's the perfect answer answer. Jesus himself, when he was asked what's the greatest commandment, said the same thing. And here, Jesus gives affirmation to this answer. He tells him, you have answered correctly. That if, if you want to understand what Scripture teaches about how someone who belongs to the people of God, it teaches that they love God totally, and out of that love, they love their neighbor. There's a horizontal and a vertical dimension. They love God totally, and out of that they love their neighbor. Perfect answer. Great answer. And he tells them to do this, and you will live. Now, don't get bent out of shape thinking that Jesus here is now issuing a salvation by works idea. To do so would be to ignore everything you've even read in Luke. But what Jesus is affirming is not that you can earn your salvation, but he is affirming that that is the ethic of a believer. Love God out of that love neighbor. Story should have ended right there. We should be done. There was a question, there was a conversation, there was an answer, there was an affirmation, there was an exhortation. Perfect, done, we should be over. But we're not. The conversation continues. Not because Jesus felt there was more to say on the matter, but because our lawyer friend does. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked, And who is my neighbor? Our lawyer friend isn't quite done with this conversation. He understands and he's probably quite happy that he has just received, you know, praise, public praise for answering correctly. But he wants to justify himself, meaning he wants to make sure that what he is currently doing, that how he understands this great commandment is correct. So he asks, who is my neighbor? Now, remember there were two parts to his answer. There was love God totally and out of that love neighbor. He doesn't ask about the first part. He seems to think he's got the first part down. I hold that if he truly had the first part down, if he truly understood what it meant to love God totally, he wouldn't even have to ask about the second part. But he wants to justify himself. So he says, who is my neighbor? You ever invited people to a wedding? I have. You get in this business of, I want friends, good friends, and family. So you start deciding, who am I going to invite? And you start working through that. 
and really what you're working through, who am I not obligated to invite? Who, if I don't invite, is really, well, you know, acceptable, okay? Well, that's what this guy's doing. When he asks the question, who is my neighbor, it's not because he's wanting to know if it's okay to love everybody. He's wanting to know if he can restrict that love to certain few. To people like him. To people who obey the law. Definitely not the disobedient Jews. Certainly not the Romans. And of course not, well, Samaritans. He's looking to define, to restrict, to understand who pre-qualifies for his love. And it's to this that the parable is told. This conversation about what a follower of God does. A follower of God loves him totally and out of that love, loves his neighbor. That's the context. And within that, our lawyer friend wants to know, well, who do I really have to show this love? Are you with me so far? This is the background. This is yes. This is no. Are you with me? Okay, good. This is the story of why the Good Samaritan comes about. It's not just a simple morality tale. It's about what does a person who loves God totally and loves his neighbor, what does that look like? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now our lawyer friend, if he's paying close attention, he might know he's in trouble. He might know the gig is up. He might realize this might not be going so swimmingly for him after all. Did you catch that? I'll I'll read it again. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Actually, I didn't even need to give you that much information. In reply, Jesus said, a man. What kind of man? An obedient man? We don't know. A Jewish man? We don't know. A Gentile man? Could be. We don't know. But yet, you see, for our lawyer friend, that information is critical to deciding how he is going to respond. That information was central because if it is in his little group that pre-qualifies, he knows what to do. But yet Jesus tells a story and it's a man. Any man. The everyman. Your common Joe. Joseph, probably, in this terms. I mean, it's, it's just a guy. So a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came by to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. I've heard it time and time again that this priest and this Levite did nothing. That is completely wrong. They did something. They saw him and they removed themselves from the situation. They saw him, and they removed themselves from the situation. 
it's been debated about why. Some will say, well, there were purity laws in effect. Just so you know, a priest could touch someone who was dead or appeared dead or half dead if there was no family around. Some people say, well, they must have been busy about temple duties. Well, they were actually leaving Jerusalem, going to Jericho. The point of the matter is, we don't know. Jesus doesn't give motivation to this character. All we need to know, they saw him and took themselves out of the situation. They took an action. They did an action. So here we are. We're on this story. We hear about this guy who got beat up on the way to Jericho, which is a very, very dangerous place. We've heard about the priest. We've heard about the Levite. Now we may be thinking the hero's coming. We know the hero is coming. And probably most people in the Jewish audience hearing this would think the hero was going to be a Jewish peasant. The bad guys had been the upper class, so probably naturally the hero is going to be a Jewish peasant. Instead, it's a Samaritan coming down. I don't know if my mic worked. I said it was a Samaritan coming down. You guys don't seem to be troubled by this. A good Samaritan, I mean, can you imagine such a thing? Well, of course you can imagine such a thing, but there's no concept of a bad Samaritan in our world. But in the first century world, in the Jewish idea, a Samaritan was despicable. A Samaritan was, for historical and theological reasons, a traitor, a a heretic, despised. It would be as if I was telling you a story, and I was telling this story. And my hero, I'm talking to you about Christian obedience, and my hero is a pro-abortion, pro-homosexuality, God-hating atheist. You'd get a bit of a reaction to that, wouldn't you? That's the kind of reaction they would have had to a Samaritan. And I think Jesus uses a Samaritan in this story. I think there are several reasons, but the main reason is to underscore that what is key here is not who a person is, is or what class a person belongs to, but the action taken. If you heard this story, you would be like, well, what's a Samaritan going to do? Remember, the whole thing is about do this. So we get to our Samaritan. And what does our Samaritan do? Well, he sees and inserts himself into the situation. He sees, he has compassion, he feels, and he inserts himself into the situation. Our priest, our Levite, saw and removed themselves from the situation. The Samaritan goes through a whole string of things here. But I don't think that's what's important. I think what's important is that he put himself into that man's world to help him, to restore him, to love him. Story concludes, and Jesus asks the question Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Remind me, but what was the question that started it all? It's who is my neighbor. Yet, Jesus doesn't ask that question. 
he asked which of these three was a neighbor. He tosses completely out of hand the question of who is my neighbor. He doesn't really even answer that question. Everyone is your neighbor. He just removes it from the scenario. It's as almost as if the question that should have been asked, the question upon studying Scripture, the question upon loving your neighbor as yourself, the question that begged to be asked, the question that Jesus wants to answer, isn't, who is my neighbor? But is, what does this love look like? Who acted like a neighbor? That's the question that really begged to be answered. And our lawyer friend, once again, gets the right answer. The one who showed mercy. I've heard it said that perhaps our lawyer was, couldn't bear to say the word Samaritan, so he doesn't say it. Maybe, I don't know. But he gets it. He gets that the thing that distinguished between the three was the one who inserted himself into the situation. And Jesus again tells them, go and do likewise. You know, I was preparing for this. I got through this part of my preparation and I'm okay. I'm pretty good. Feeling good about it. I get to talking and thinking about application. What does that mean? That's when it starts not being so simple. That's when I get that kick in the pants theologians like to call conviction. That's when I start realizing, if I'm honest, I like the lawyer's question. If I'm really honest, that's the question I like, is who is my neighbor? Because if I can define neighbor as, say, my family, I've got no problem looking, feeling, and inserting myself into the situation. If I can define my neighbor as friends, I've got no problem looking, feeling, and inserting myself into the situation. Even if it's you guys, I've got no problem. Jesus doesn't really let me answer that. Everyone's my neighbor. And then I have to start dealing with what this story is telling me in my heart. That I am not the broker determining who gets Christ's grace and who gets Christ's love. No one has to meet some sort of pre-standard that I am to extend, that my love for God is to extend out to everyone else regardless. Regardless if they are suffering because of the decisions they made. This man was walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, a very dangerous area. It would have been very tempting to say, well, what did you expect? You were walking down that area. And I do this. Maybe we do this. You hear a story of a, a scantily clad woman, perhaps inebriated, gets raped. And you start saying something like, well, that's horrible, she got raped, and I hope they catch you did it, but what do you expect when you're going to dress like that and act like that? And you notice what's happened there? I've stopped looking at her, and I've started looking at process, decisions, I've stopped seeing her. If you stop seeing, you can't have compassion. 
We are to love regardless if their decisions led to that suffering. We are to love, and I don't mean some sort of passive over-spiritualizing love where we say a prayer for them and really what we're doing is just kind of assuaging our own guilt. No, I'm not talking about that love. I'm talking about a love that puts yourself into the situation, even if we're too busy. This Samaritan had places to go. He had things to do. We love the excuse. I love the excuse too busy. Gets me out of phone calls. Gets me out of going to events on a Friday night I don't want to go to. Ah, I'm too busy. Can't go. Gets me out of love. Oh, that person's hurting, but man, I could, someone will take care of it. I'm too busy. This story does not allow that excuse. We are to love regardless if we're too busy. We are to love regardless if it's quote-unquote not our place. Privacy is a strong social force. And one I love. But privacy does not excuse me from loving and acting on that love. And I say that a lot. I'll be like, well, it's not really my place to say something to him. It's not really my place to do that. I had just started work up in downtown Boston. was riding the red line back and forth. I was coming home, and there weren't too many people on the subway car. There were actually three people. There was a young woman, myself, and an older woman. This young woman was bawling her eyes out. I mean, wretchedly crying. You couldn't help but look at her. I looked at her and felt awkward, uncomfortable, did nothing. I'm thinking about the whole scene as being sort of odd. This older woman gets up, sits next to her, puts her arm around her, and I can hear what she said. She said, I'm so sorry. Whatever it is, it'll pass. Hmm. That, that was it. She didn't do a whole big grandiose thing. That was it. But she saw, she felt... And she inserted herself into the situation where I was concerned that it wasn't my place. I mean, isn't this the picture of what Christ has done, though? That Christ saw us, these reeking of death and sin heaps, and he loved us, he felt, and he inserted himself into the situation. He inserted himself onto the cross. See, I think compassion is not our problem. I know compassion is not our problem. Christ's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of compassion, the Spirit of love, dwells fully in every believer. Dwells fully. Tabernacles in your soul. There's no way it won't just explode out of you. I don't think compassion is the problem. I think the problem is we don't look. We don't hold that gaze on that person long enough to allow compassion to build up. 
Because that compassion will build up. The Holy Spirit will want to overflow out of you. It will build up. But we don't hold the gaze long enough. Because, well, they deserved it. We're too busy. It's not my place. This story, as I thought about it, really struck me. It's about a love of God extending out to a love of others. And if I'm having difficulty with the love of others, I'm probably having difficulty with the whole total love of God. Because this is His love. And that's when it starts to get a little easier. This is His love. His love. Not my love. My love's fallen and broken. This is His love. He will do it. And the beautiful news, friends, is we can be those vessels of grace that He can pour out wherever He chooses. That someone can hunger and He can use us to feed them. That someone could be naked and He could use us to clothe them. That someone could mourn and He can use us to comfort them. That someone could be alone and He can use us to touch them. That someone can be unloved and He can use us to love them. There will come a moment for you. Maybe today, maybe at home with your family, maybe this week, maybe this month. There will come a moment when you will find yourself seeing someone hurting. And at that point, you will have a decision. Two actions you can make. You can either remove yourself from the situation or you can insert yourself into the situation. You will make an action. At that moment, at that moment, think about our lawyer friend. Think about the priest. Think about the Levite. And then think about the Samaritan. And hear the words of Jesus. And go. And do likewise. Let's stand together. Thank you, Mark, for sharing God's word with us this morning. And uh, let's respond to the Lord. We want to sing together. We are one in the Spirit as we think about this. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are.